Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hey, I got to kick the tires on some new technology this week. It's been kind of fun. Oh, what have you been doing? Yeah, we, we've chatted in the past a couple times about adaptive cards. Yeah. And they have a new templating capability. They do. Yes. So this this is scenario, high-level scenario. In the past, right, I wanted to render an adaptive card based on the state of something. And so I would call a API that would then use the SDK to build the card. And I mentioned in the past, I think it was very similar to how you would build web controls in a web form. You'd you know, start by the card and add the elements that you need to render. Yeah, yeah. Well, now, it, the, think of uh, like SharePoint search results with a XSLT where you could just specify what you want and put a token in there and pass them the, to- the template and the data packet. And they'll do that data merge, if you will, for you automatically. So it's not xslt though is it please tell me no it's not it's a similar Mm. concept right and there are some json transformation libraries out in the world but this is you know their own and it's very early we'll put a link in the show notes it's very early preview but now instead of calling instead of hosting a web api i can put my template on a cdn and i can then update a json file that is the data as necessary and no matter when, whenever the user references the, I have an SPS, SPFX web part that runs this, right? Whenever you load that web part, it'll call out to get that JSON file and render with the current status. So I don't have to stand up a function app or a web app or anything, right? In theory, it could be a static website if you want to just update that JSON file. So it's pretty pretty slick stuff. So. It is. And uh, actually, we use it in Graph Explorer. Well, yes, there is a... a if you click around through the documentation, you can see there's other things that like to light up uh, Office UI Fabric automatically, and then some uh, the templating service, which is it's referenced, but there really isn't any details because they say it's very early and the details are coming. So yeah, um, yeah. Well, in in the preview, I just checked because I was like, I wonder if it's in there already because this has been something we've been talking about for a while. We launched this at Ignite, but if you go to the Graph Explorer preview. So go to the normal Graph Explorer and click the preview button or whack preview on your URL. When you run a query like whack me and you go to the adaptive cards tab in the bottom right, rather than the response preview, what we're actually doing there is taking the JSON response that comes back from the graph and throwing it at that template um, engine. And in the GitHub repo, we've gone and built a bunch of templates based on particular resource objects that come back. In this case, the user object that comes back. Um, and we do that by the OData type, which is all the OData context. So this is the user entity. And so when it runs it and renders it, we've got a little card. And one thing we just recently added in the, the top right of that pane is you can actually go and click on the little thing and copy the query with the template URL built, built into it, which is pretty cool. So it's really good tech. And um, they're really looking for feedback right now. Yeah, if you've got any feedback for that team, please jump on their GitHub repo and take a look. I know that Nicola in the Microsoft Graph Toolkit team is also working to move this tech into the Toolkit too, which would be really nice. Yeah, they do have a page talking about this service in which you can make a call to the find endpoint and, it, and pass in your data and they will do some analyze the structure of your data and give you a template if it matches. So. 
the, what you described being used in the in the Graph Explorer is somewhat available to us. I mean, it's not obviously it's not a service that you can call in production because it's still being built, yeah. but. But it's pretty, all the information's pretty, pretty, all there. Pretty, pretty slick stuff. So yeah. So yeah, I was very happy with the adaptive cards, uh, uh, the templating side, and, and I found some things that I didn't like. And like for example, I wanted to do alternating styles, like a like you would do a grid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I would, you know, using their dollar index function to get the, you know, am I in the first or second one? And there was a bug there, and and David Clow hopped on and he fixed it. It's not published yet, but so they're very reactive. It was very, it was very cool. Uh, yeah. So I'm looking forward to. It's kind of funny though. Like I feel like we every few years with new frameworks or things, we seem to revisit the same old problems that we visited over and over and over again. <laughs> like that was, you know, I remember. I think it was like Laura Rogers or someone writing a, a blog post about how to do that with the XLT templates way back in the day. And I remember speaking to her over dinner one time, like how many blog hits she was getting from that blog post just because people just used it you know, as a copy and paste thing to go grab those alternate role coloring. Yeah, it well, yeah, yeah. And XSLT has been around since the digital dashboard, which was pre-Y2K. So Gee, the, the, yeah. these concepts have been there forever and it's just all new and improved. But so, uh, yeah, so I did that uh, and um, it's on my list then to publish that updated adaptive card rendering web part. We'll get there, but yeah, so it's been a pretty fun tech week for me in that regard. It's cool. It's fun getting to play like that. Yeah, I don't get many days like that, unfortunately. Yeah. Have you seen any uh, Microsoft news uh, that you you wanted to share? I know you did, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> I, it, it's pretty cool. I am a gadget person, and I will say that uh, I'm kind of very excited for these Neo and Geo Surface devices to come out in the, the holiday period which is Christmas at the end of the year in December. But um, I will say my there's a distinguishing in there, Greg Friedman, who works in our neighborhood um, of 10 or so desks. And he just got an iPad Pro, the new one, and bought a screen protector for it that makes it feel like paper when you use the Apple Pencil. And I was like, oh, that's going to be a gimmick. And then I did it. I was like, ugh. Now I need to buy one of those. <laughs> so I, and he's as bad as I am, but the problem is, is he has way more money. I am because he's a distinguished engineer. So he goes through gadgets like nobody's business. So I might just wait till he gets bored of that one and buy something else. And then I'll offer him cash for it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, the, so on a Microsoft note, when it comes to kind of devices and styluses and, and me being exotic for tech gadgets, um, there was an announcement about a dual screen preview SDK and a Microsoft 365 developer day that is coming up. Um, the developer day is it's February the 11th. So it's a few weeks time if you're listening to this as the show drops. And basically it's going to walk through how to get the most out of these SDKs with the emulator and the notion of like using cross-platform tools like Xamarin Forms to build applications that work on those devices. Um, they in this blog post they kind of explain how you would embrace dual screen experiences and quite honestly i've seen what some of our competitors are doing with dual screen and i feel like microsoft have led with the benefits that you get from that dual screen rather than just kind of showing off shiny hardware and kind of saying this is cool and the fact that microsoft's so far ahead of this with like there's an extended canvas mode and then there's a master detail mode. And then there's just having two pages 
um, as a mode or even a dual view mode um, and a companion pane mode. Like I think the fact they've thought about this stuff and they've got an SDK that's really thought for around this is going to be really exciting for users that get this device. You may or may not see um, that there is a graph session that I will be doing at this event, set event two. And so I'm kind of excited to show from a graph perspective what we're doing here. And, you know, Sacha was talking to the press a while ago and saying that, you know, the real benefit we have with these hardware devices is the fact that the graph can power it much like we power graph across you know ios and other android devices and so there's a really cool demo we'll be showing that kind of highlights the benefits of this device and it being dual screen but also powering it by the graph so definitely check out that developer day there's some awesome speakers that are um, uh, presenting there there is like a, a keynote type session at the beginning which i'd really encourage you to check out and then there's like breakouts that go into detail about different things so if you're interested in this, you can go use this SDK right now because it is an emulator that runs, an Android emulator that runs. So you can see what it looks like. And, you know, I think it's just great that we're that early with this stuff in building building them out before the devices are even ready. So will you be getting one, Paul? Are you, uh, uh, you're not much of a gadget guy. Your headset looks like it's six years old in that webcam. So, Well, no, well, no actually... It's a it's a somewhat recent headset. Um, I I am a gadget guy, but whether I want to spend money on that or not is the issue, right? So um, we'll we'll see. I, I'm not sure. I, I got frustrated with Android, so I swapped away from an Android device. So it yeah. will be. But uh, perhaps I'll just have to convince a customer or two that they need this, and then the, the boss will have to buy me one so that I can uh, <laughs> code on it, right? That sounds so, like a plan. <laughs> that, yeah, that, right. That, that's what, Yeah, and so uh, and also in the links to the show notes, I'll post there's a step-by-step instruction on how to you know use the new emulator. And I did see some blog posts about other folks are not necessarily using it for development, but but just to see how the experience might look. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of inquisitiveness around the devices to see what they will be and, and how it'll look and how, how Microsoft brings it to the table. So yeah, looking forward to, certainly looking forward to playing with one, whether I buy one, I guess we'll, we'll see. The problem of course, is that I spend most of my time here in my office with my widescreen monitor. So I can't imagine why I would need a little folded in half device that I leaves the house, you know, once a month. So. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> We'll see about that. And so uh, one little community item uh, I found this week, we mentioned uh, about the Graph PowerShell SDK a few times, and I know that um, Daryl, oh, oh, yeah, has talked about it He listens to the podcast, too. I know every week I was joking that he doesn't listen, and then he pinged me on Teams. He's like, just so you know, I do listen. I was like... (laughs) Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, we you had found a, a blog post from Lee Ford a, a few weeks back the, yeah. about using that, and uh, he updated that. I saw this on on Twitter. He posted how he updated his blog post, and so he's actually looped around. Yes, yeah, so, so cool. Get- yeah, so I think it was originally posted in beginning of December, and he was using like invoke HTTP, you know, to call Graph directly. And um, I can't remember if I tweeted him, but hey. Maybe maybe it was me that was like, hey, you know, there's this new PowerShell SDK. We'd love your feedback. And so then on the 23rd of January, he's actually gone through and updated the blog post now to use the um, Microsoft Graph PowerShell command lists that are now in preview release of 0.1.0 in our PowerShell gallery. And I think, we excuse me, we mentioned this last week, but we've taken on a lot of the feedback we've been having from 
PowerShell people. And honestly, the amount of feedback we're getting on this is incredible compared to kind of some of the feedback we got on some of their other SDKs. Um, and so we did add the prefix, and so now it's get-mg user. So either you can say that that's magnesium or that it's Microsoft Graph, whichever way you want to choose. And so, yeah, so we're, we've been getting lots of nice usage out of this already in a preview. And Peter, who works here in engineering, who's in the neighborhood across the hallway from me, has been driving this work. Um, we're actually ramping up another engineer who's been working with me on other projects to work on this too. So you can expect this to really rock and roll in the next few weeks, which is really exciting. So I appreciate Lee updating that. And, you know, if you are an admin or like I mentioned in the show before, uh, we even use this for kind of like tearing down and spinning back up applications in Azure AD for setting up demo environments with tenants and so forth. There's a lot you can do with the graph. And obviously the PowerShell is a, is a way through to that world of graph. And we've made the auth super easy. We're just right now we call it kind of dash graph, but there's already been feedback we should probably align with what everyone else does and call it connect-mg account. And so, yeah, keep up your feedback. We are listening, as you can tell from the evolution of this as we go through it. Yes. I, first, I was ambivalent thinking, oh, that's great. But as it turns out, I've had to spend a week and a half scripting some Azure provisioning stuff. And sure enough, it'd be nice to get some information from Microsoft Graph. So um, I'm not sure I'm going to take a dependency on the preview version 0.1. <laughs> Might let it mature another couple of weeks. But yeah, so there are tons of, tons of opportunity there. And so, look, I'm glad that that's finally uh, rolling out. So it'd be, be good to see. And so uh, this week, I, I was able to catch up with uh, uh, Office Server and Services MVP named Peter Carson. Peter works at a company called Dextranet User Manager. Him and I have gone way back, as we'll hear about. And uh, I saw him in Chicago here, and he was talking about electronic forms and capturing data and the different approaches you could do that. And so I thought this would be a nice little pivot from our our typical, you know, deep dive into the geeky stuff and more of a high level, what could you use and why should you use it or not? So I appreciate Peter coming on to uh, to talk about that. He covers everything from Microsoft Forms all the way through to uh, using Bootstrap to talk, to write a web API so, or a web app. So, That's cool. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, fun, fun fact about him. He's a cool guy. We um, When the MVP summits used to have paintball, which is going back a fair while now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, you know, he can get definitely carried away with paintball for sure. His adrenaline was obviously pretty high and like the game had ended or something. And I turned around and he shot me in the back with a, and it was a freezing cold day <laughs> and uh, it really hurt. And so every time I see him, he pretty much always apologizes for the paintball. <laughs> I didn't know that story. That's excellent. I, I do remember I missed the paintball. It was my first year as an MVP, which means it was over a decade ago. So, so uh, but, and Becky probably knew everybody's name back then too, right? As opposed to the thousands upon people this year. Yeah, but, no joke. Well, so that that's great. Um, so uh, thanks again to Peter for taking time out and going over this again. And uh, look forward to chatting again next week. See you, buddy. See you, mate. This week, my guest is Peter Carson. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for having me, Paul. 
It's my pleasure. Uh, for folks who don't know who Peter is, can you give us a quick introduction? Sure. So, full name is Peter Carson. I'm a Office Apps and Services MVP uh, based out of Mississauga, just west of Toronto in Canada, and run a company called Envision IT, an external user manager. Our focus is really, you know, historically being around SharePoint consultancy and custom development, and that's uh, really morphed into Office 55 as a whole as the cloud has taken over. Great. And then you and I have chatted quite a bit in the in the past. And, and for those who know both of us, don't worry, we're not going to do my favorite topic of identity here. Obviously, you and I have chatted quite a bit about <laughs> authentication yes. to SharePoint. Yes. Yeah, so a lot of great times, at least for me. But this week, um, we're finally catching up after you were visiting here in Chicago at, at uh, SharePoint Fest, I believe it was. And That's correct. You mentioned you had did a session on uh, electronic forms and the various alternatives. And that kind of piqued my interest. So I'd love to spend some time this week just going through what that, uh, you know, in regards to that session, what are these electronic form alternatives that you consider? And then obviously your opinion on what you think the, the pluses and minuses might be or where developers could do that. So to start off with, what are your uh, options or what, what what do you think is a good choices for electronic forms? Sure. Well, before we get there, I'm, I'm actually going to do a little background and, and history. This is actually a talk that I've given for quite a number of years. And, you know, We've been developing for SharePoint all the way back into the the beginning SharePoint days when we were building full trust solutions. You know, and then we looked at Sandbox and we tried building apps in the the apps model in the 2013 days. wasn't a real big fan of that, and and started doing a lot more client side development myself. And you know, a number of other MVPs were, were early champions around that. And then SharePoint Framework came around, and I got really excited because you know, I mean that. Uh, that nailed a lot of things from our point of view in terms of what we wanted an application to be. And, and that is one of the topics that we're going to talk about, but it's only one of quite a few different options that we have uh, for building forms and, and for building apps within SharePoint. And and even saying that, you know, the half dozen or so that I'm going to cover are by no means an exhaustive list. They're just an example of the ones that we've often used and, and what that looks like. Actually, in the presentation itself, what I start off with is a bit of a checklist of, of what I see from an ideal app model point of view. And this actually stemmed from my dissatisfaction with you know, the, the Microsoft app model that they introduced a number of years back in SharePoint prior to SharePoint Framework and, and what we did to address things around that. And, and first and foremost was no iframes. You know, I'm I'm really a, a hater when it comes to that. I understand there's some edge cases around security where you might want to use an iframe, but in general, from a user experience point of view, they're horrible. You end up with you know screen sailing issues and multiple scroll bars and things like that. So let's just get away from that and and have it a full integrated client side solution from that point of view. And and I understand the evolution that Microsoft went through going from the full trust solutions days. I mean, we're still dealing with legacy SharePoint 2010 installations that have custom farm solutions deployed on them. And, you know, how do you deal with that from a migration point of view, particularly when you go to the cloud? You know, Microsoft, for, for good reasons, in the multi-tenant SaaS world, doesn't want you running your code on their servers. They're never going to let that happen. So how do you deal with that? I already mentioned the user experience side from the iframes point of view, but kind of beyond that, you want to be able to do anything that you want to do from a stack developer and a user experience point of view to the fullest of your abilities. And, and part of that is not being 
a SharePoint specific developer. You know, in the past, you need to be almost a SharePoint admin as well as developer to, to build those full trust solutions. How can we take somebody that's just an awesome HTML, CSS, JavaScript, jQuery, React, what have you, developer that's a full stack web developer and have them come into the SharePoint world and be able to be productive and effective and build great apps right out the, the get-go from that point of view? Yeah, and I want to cut you off a little bit on there. Sorry about that. But, you know, and that, that kind of that, that iframe issue, and I, I don't know that we've, we haven't talked much about this on the podcast in the past because it's been a while, but just to reiterate, right? So those security issues may be something for you and I both working at ISVs, but for most developers who are just doing line of business apps within their company, a lot of those issues really don't apply, right? They don't, no. And, and there's really no need for having the iframe there. It just complicates things from a, an end user's experience point of view. So, so coming back to the last couple of points on the list here, though, um, there's an important one. You know, as we make that move into to doing client-side development, whether that's in SharePoint Framework or, or some other model, you have to bear in mind that, well, that code is running in JavaScript on the client side, and maybe there's things that we don't want running in that code because a, a savvy user, you know, that knows how to hit F12 in their browser and start messing with your JavaScript can do some interesting things. Like let's say we've got a vacation request form um, and it goes back to the back end and says, hey, you have 10 days of vacation remaining and you have 12 in there and say, I have six months vacation. I'm going to put my request in. You know, that might not be kosher with HR. So so understanding where you need to, to run code on the client side, but where you still have a need to run code on the, the back end. And part of my uh, solutions I'm going to talk about address that without having to get into heavy code environments. You know, and then the the idea that apps may not just be talking to SharePoint. You may have other backend systems that you need to integrate in as part of that. And how does that work and look like? And then lastly, you know, this idea of being able to do development locally um, that SharePoint Framework brought out. I really like that idea too, that I can build my app as a standalone, you know, HTML app, for example, get all that user experience work done and then move it into the, the SharePoint world from there. So those were sort of my checklists that I was looking for from a, an ideal app model point of view. Yeah, which sounds sounds great. But um, and as we chatted before we started here, you do have some options that maybe don't need all those features, right? So I guess that would uh, I'm assuming we're going to start there with uh, what are my options? Maybe my option isn't writing code. Exactly. And and let's actually run through the laundry list of of the ones that I'm going to cover on in this topic here. And I'm going to start from simplest to more complex. And and the simplest that I'm actually a big fan of is Microsoft Forms. I mean, this is a zero developer. Um, any power user should be able to figure this out and and put together some fairly sophisticated uh, surveys, forms, applications. You know, you can get into branching logic and add some complexity in there. It supports different types of fields and such. You can put a little bit of branding into it. Uh, but as long as, you know, you're happy working within the box that Microsoft Performs provides for you, you can actually do some pretty effective things. And those can be targeted not just to your internal staff, but you can make them anonymously available so anybody can can submit in. And that's been a, a big pain point with some of the solutions is, you know, how do you deal with anonymous forms? And, and that's actually my second one, which is Power Apps. Uh, Power Apps, now you're getting into a Power Apps portal where you can have external people coming in. But when Power Apps first came out, there was no story if, if you wanted somebody external to your organization to interact with that application that you're building you didn't have a solution for that. And, and Power Apps, as the name implies, was originally targeted to a Power user. Um, we've had pretty poor results with trying to get a Power user to build a Power App. I mean, it is a developer type of tool. And Microsoft's kind of changed their messaging. They now that, call that a citizen developer, you know, they're recognizing that you need to be at least 
um, some developer chops to you to to be effective in in using Power Apps. But it's it's pretty cool though the the whole connector ecosystem, the the wide range of systems that Power Apps can can hook into. And the fact that you can actually build custom connectors for that as well. And I actually give a talk uh, just on that topic, both from a a Power Automate and Power Apps point of view. How do you build those connections to your own line of business systems, external SaaS systems that maybe don't have out-of-the-box connectors? So that was option two. Yeah. So, uh, the, yeah, I, I just, the, both of these obviously targeted less toward the people who sling around uh, curly braces and semicolons and more toward citizen developers or, or other folks, right? And so, do, first of all, do you see people trying to migrate from one to the other? Or, or is it really, I pick the tool that works for me and we go from there uh, regarding these first two forms and Power Apps and Microsoft Forms? I think it's more a question of what fits the the problem that you're trying to solve, and they are very different. I mean, a Microsoft Forms doesn't have the deep applic integration that Power Apps has. So, I mean, it's very much a standalone form that starts with an empty slate, and and you go from there and collect some answers to some questions. You know, and if if that fits what you're trying to do, great. It's it's a great solution for that. If you need to do something deeper, uh, then you're into at least a Power Apps from that point of view. Yeah, yeah. and now it's been a long time since I looked at Microsoft Forms, but I have a vague recollection of it being very similar to the SharePoint list that we know and love, where I can click a button and say, I'm get a field for name, and it gives me a box I can type in a name and an email or whatever, right? Exactly. It's it's. I mean, you could probably call it a survey tool. I mean, that's probably the best way to think about it is I want to get a collection of questions together to, to collect information and that can write into a, a SharePoint list. It can drive into a workflow from there, but it's very much, a, for the most part, a linear flow through some questions. You can add some branching logic to say, if they answer to this, to this question, skip this one or ask this one instead. So there is a little bit of complexity you can get in there, but you know, it's a very fixed box. You, you know, if, if it doesn't fit, it's never going to fit. So you kind of need to look at it that way. Whereas Power Apps is very much a blank slate, create what you want and, and go from there. And, and really the rest that we're going to talk to are more on that side. So as we keep going down the, the complexity list, next up is adaptive cards. And this is actually pr- pretty cool technology for Microsoft. You know, they've, they've open sourced this out. Um, it's got things like Outlook actionable messages that get used in Outlook. They've got team support in there as well. And the idea is around eliminating context switching that, you know, if I've got a form that I want to collect, can that be a bot in Teams? Can that be an actual message in Outlook? Where I don't need to, you know, click a link in that Teams message or in that Outlook email, but right within the context of that application, I can fill out that form. And it is very much a declarative. Um, you know, it's it's not something that you code up the form. Um, it's it's a JSON structure that defines what that form looks like. Uh, but then you can hook into backend systems from there. You can have it post to to different backends from there, and drive business process with that. I really like the idea, though, of of providing that ability of doing it in context. Yeah, these I, I love adaptive cards, and and just I, I had a, uh, someone else real life using it at Microsoft just uh, this week, right? So as most of our listeners know, right, my, the office for is back in London and I'm in Chicago. So things happen while I'm still asleep. And I, w- and I woke up the, the, earlier this week, there was a message I saw on my phone that uh, a colleague was requesting access to a SharePoint site. It was a typical request access workflow that you do in SharePoint. And um, I saw on my phone, it was, you know, I, you know, I want to have access and with the link to, to go ahead and, and grant the access. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that on my phone. And I just, up. So then about 90 minutes later, when I actually settled into work and I op- launched Outlook on my desktop, that same message 
came back and it said that the access was already granted and it listed who actually granted access to it. And that's that adaptive cards, actionable messages technology that you reference, where it actually updated the message context in Outlook that when I viewed the message, it, got a, it went and got the latest status and said, oh, the, I, there's nothing for me to do because it's already been done. So that's a great, as you were saying, it's a nice in-context thing that I, I, I didn't have to go through and, oh, someone's already created an owner or done whatever I needed to do. It was really kind of slick. So pretty cool stuff on that. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned there, the fact that that form updates itself once you've performed that action so you don't end up doing it again is, is a nice feature in there as well. So then the, the fourth one that I talked about in, in the talk down in Chicago uh, was an actual SharePoint framework in React form. And, and what we did here is we said, okay, can we make a, a an SPFX web part, which is effectively a, a an on-demand form that can be customized without being a developer. And and what we did was we used the Office React UI components and, and Microsoft's done a nice job of publishing out components in that fabric for each of the different SharePoint list column types. So, you know, you've got your standard single line, multi-line text fields and yes and no and choices. And you get the more complex like people pickers and uh, term store managed metadata forms. I mean, those would be more complex to code up individually as a developer. And the nice thing about using the, the Office Fabric is it's got all that plumbing there for you. So what we were able to do is to, to build an SPX form that supports all those different field types. But what we did is we actually pointed it to a SharePoint content type. And the idea here is that if you're building a form and it's, it's strictly from a data capture point of view, so it's not providing any sort of custom functionality of you know what state am I in and I'm editing versus adding and things like that. It was strictly from an ad perspective. But as a, a consumer of that SharePoint framework form, you could actually update the SharePoint content type to say, here's the uh, the columns that I want to capture on the form, and then point the form at that content type, and it would dynamically generate the form itself on the fly through there. So it was a pretty cool way of sort of a build once and use in multiple different ways from there. We actually open sourced that particular solution out as part of our uh, Teams and, and SharePoint provisioning solution that we have where we've got a, a site request form and you may have different fields that you want to capture that, you know, how do you want to tag or, or put metadata around your sites or your teams that you're creating in your Office 65 environment? Well, let's keep that open and let's let people define those fields themselves just by defining new site columns in a content type. So that's a fascinating application, right? And so let me repeat this again to make sure I'm understanding it correctly. So it, it sounds from a, a non-technical user perspective that I can modify a content type and you'll generate a form for me like that. Is that, am it, I exactly. hearing that correctly? Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, okay. it's basically a, a custom built open source SharePoint framework web part uh, that is a form builder. Now it's, it's not a full featured like power apps deal with all your different scenarios. It's very much a form capture. It's intended just for, you know, here's a blank form, fill in the fields that I've specified on it. I will write that to a SharePoint list. So it's, you know, again, you have to think about what's the purpose that we're trying to achieve here. What's the problem we're trying to solve? And if this fits to that, uh, great. But I guess the broader conversation from that is just this ability to, to fairly easily take SharePoint framework and the, the Office UI fabric that's built on React and mash those together and build your own 
um, custom forms and applications fairly easily through there. You know, I'm a huge fan of SPFX. I think Microsoft has really nailed it this time. Probably last year, uh, I was listening to a talk, I can't remember if it was Visa or Jeff Cheaper, just basically saying, yeah, we've we've had this colored history where we had Full Trust, and then we had Sandbox, and then we had SharePoint apps. And yes, this is our fourth kick at how you should develop applications for SharePoint. But this one's here to stay, and, and this is why it's working. And I tend to agree with that statement that they really have got it right here now. You know, it checks all the things on that ideal app model checklist that I uh, went through just earlier in this talk. So, so were there any n- noteworthy pain points in working with the Office UI fabric controls? Did you say you had everything you needed or most of them? Um, I can't speak firsthand. It was Rashawn, who's one of our developers, that actually built that particular application for us. Um, but yeah, I think it went quite smoothly that the the fact that you know I honestly was a little worried about things like the people picker and the term store because getting that type of UI functionality properly wired in to your SharePoint didn't sound like a trivial task. But in the end, you know, while maybe not trivial, it was very achievable uh, using that. Yeah, and and you've said a couple times now that you've open sourced this, so we'll we can get a link out to that. So if I want to kick the tires or or hack at that, uh, that's available for me to to look at. Absolutely, yeah, I've got it all published up in our our GitHub. We haven't published the source, just the um, the catalogs for that. We're looking to to get the source properly tagged from a source licensing point of view in all the the various files and such, and get that up in there. But that's part of the plan as well. In fact, I just gave a talk. Uh, yesterday on that particular topic, and we've been busy updating all the GitHub and, and supporting documentation around that. So absolutely, I can get a link to uh, to provide it to people as part of that. Again, your point about the the what are the needs that we're trying to accomplish here makes sense. We're, you're not replacing the built-in SharePoint list forms, right? This is a different type of uh, a scenario that you were supporting, right? Exactly, different beast altogether. You know, it. it we want to have a different experience for the end user. We want to maybe have some business rules in there that are more than is this field required or not, which is kind of the extent of what you can do with the out-of-the-box list forms in SharePoint. Yeah, and then obviously being in, in SPFX, then you can do anything you need to. You can call back end systems or kick off flows or do whatever you need, right? Yeah, and actually that's a good segue to, to the last option that we have here, which is just hand-building a... a fully interactive, responsive HTML form. You know, use um, whatever whatever framework you want to, whether that's from a React or an Angular or even a simple bootstrap or a knockout model. You know, there's no constraints there from that point of view. Create it however you want um, and then have that post to a flow or a logic app workflow in the back end. And the nice thing here is that, you know, this could be a secured form that only certain users can see, or it could be a form that you literally put up on your public-facing website uh, that then just posts into the workflow and, and drives from there. So that can be a very um, very tailored user experience that at the back end just integrates right into Office 65 nice and easily from there. Now that brings me to a separate topic, which is the whole uh, flow versus logic apps. Actually, that's my next webinar topic for next month, which is when would you use one versus the other? And you know, there's been a lot of licensing changes on the Power Automate side, and and not all of them I'm terribly happy with. One in particular, 
with respect to that is having an HTTP POST endpoint for your flow workflow takes you up into the premium tier from a licensing point of view. And that can start to cost significant dollars when you have to license every user or get into per flow workflow licensing. You, know, you could be talking about thousands or tens of thousands of dollars a month in licensing charges as part of that. And that's kind of shifted me more over onto the Azure Logic App side to say, well, this is actually the platform underneath Power Automate. You know, it's the same designer. Yes, you have to go in through the Azure portal, which is a little frightening for a, a power user. It may not even be allowed for them. The IT may not want to grant them rights into that. Uh, but at the end of the day, you've, you've got, for the most part, all the same functionality in there. There are some differences. The big one being approval processes exist in Power Automate. They don't exist in Logic Apps. But we've actually built out approval processes. And we think, you know, it kind of improved on what Power Automate can do from that point of view. And I kind of like the idea that it's integrated into Visual Studio. We can get proper, you know, Azure DevOps source control of it, you know, which is hard to do on the Power Automate side. So it is more developer focused from that point of view. Um, well, I was going to dive a little bit deeper into that, right? So the while it's not necessarily what we typically consider a, a Microsoft 365 developer technology, but the Azure component behind the scenes r really makes makes uh, things more familiar, I guess, to a developer who's usually in doing stuff in Azure anyways, right? But but now for those who may not have, may not have kicked the tires as much, it, you mentioned that Logic Apps is powering the power automate capability but do i still have the ability to leverage all the connectors that exist can i still call into graph or or sharepoint or exchange or whatever's there yeah all all of those connectors are there the ability to create custom connectors you know those custom connectors are actually common between azure logic apps power automate and power app so you build it once and it works for all three of those from that point of view so it's great from that perspective so that really wouldn't necessarily be a blocker right if i if, just because an end user has uh, they've done their own power automate thing to connect to these various pieces if if i wanted to grow up that application maybe add some custom ui to it and i want to make those same calls i can still do that using logic apps because it's all same stuff everywhere exactly and, and in fact there is two way back and forth through there so you can actually export a power automate flow into Azure Logic Apps and work with it from there. I mean, if there's things like the the approval steps that you have in your Power Automate, I mean, those are not going to come through into the Logic Apps because there's no corresponding from that point of view. But all your other actions and triggers that you've got in there, even your custom ones, you know, those work from that point of view. And you can go the other direction as well. You could start in Azure Logic Apps and move it into Flow. So you could have a power user start the workflow and say, okay, we need to hand this over to a developer to go a little deeper. Uh, let's convert it into a logic apps, get it under proper source control, get it into Visual Studio um, and work with it from there. But you're not going to lose any of those uh, connectors and, and customizations you've done from that point of view. That, that I think is a very compelling argument for using a bunch of these uh, technologies in the Microsoft space as well, right? Because of inevitably, you know, so Betty in accounting started her work and now is written to a roadblock or, you know, just doesn't have time because her job is accounting, not development. So it, it, it really is a pretty great thing. So that's um, uh, fascinating to hear all that. And, and that actually takes me to one of my earlier points on the checklist, which is this idea of, of run with elevator permissions. And it's something that we used to do when we were building full trust solutions in uh, in server-side code that, you know, you get to a point in your code flow when you say, well, the, the person that's running this application doesn't and shouldn't have rights to do what now needs to happen. You know, I, I use the HR examples because they're easy ones for people to get their head around. You know, if, if we've got a list in SharePoint that has everybody's 
vacation allocations and requests and such, having that managed from a security point of view in SharePoint that all the right people have access to the right items in there gets really complicated when you think about who's your direct reports and, and how does that go up the uh, the reporting chain through an organization, you know, trying to turn that into item level permissions in SharePoint is a nightmare. And I wouldn't recommend doing it, particularly when you get into a bigger organization, the matrix just gets way too complex. So basically you need something in between that says, well, we're going to implement our own security model that understands that, hey, this person reports two levels up to this other person and that person is now approving on behalf of and they should have access to that data. Uh, but let's build that into to our solution. But what we absolutely don't want to do is build that into the JavaScript of the client side solution because that would be a huge security hole from that point of view. So how do we deal with that? Well, we can't run code on the server. I mean, traditionally what we've done in these sorts of models is built Visual Studio Web API projects to say, okay, we're gonna build a, um, a server side, but not in Office 65 and actually love app services in and, and Azure functions in Azure for doing these kinds of things. To say, well, let's just spin that up in Azure. You know, we can tie it into Azure AD from an authentication point of view so that we know that when our front end app is calling that, you know, it's running in the context of, of SharePoint Online, it can pass the Azure AD token back to that so we know who's making that call. And then we can make our own security decisions within our application logic uh, for that particular scenario and work with it from that perspective. Where I think that's getting more interesting is, is the ability to do things like um, doing HTTP calls to logic apps and saying, okay, well, maybe we don't need to spin up a whole web API project for this. Maybe we can do it with a logic app and a whole lot less code. And, and again, it depends on the scenario. You know, if we're talking about uh, an inquiry where you need to call back to a backend API to get some data, like how many vacation days do I have left available to, uh, to request? Logic apps doesn't work really well for that because it is an asynchronous where you you know you you kick the trigger on it and it goes away and does something like start an approval process. Having it return some data back for that query doesn't really work well in that model, and that's where we would say, well, let's stick with the uh, the Visual Studio you know .NET Core Web API project um, deployed, say, as an Azure function, which is a great way to deploy those types of APIs because you're not dealing with servers. You know, you just put it out there and Microsoft takes care of all the infrastructure to keep that web API running for you. And that takes us back to your initial checklist of what are my considerations or what do I need to get from my app is to help me choose what technology I want, right? So do I need real-time data or can I just have things run in the background, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're building in Power Apps, you could have a custom connector to to get you that real-time data. That's totally achievable and, and works well from that model. So, you know, it's it's kind of a matrix of who's going to be using the app or the form. Are they a known user that's in your Azure AD? Are they an anonymous user um, who's building the form? You know, what level of developer expertise? Do they want to get it in Visual Studio and C Sharp? Are they happy living in, uh, in WebStack? Or do they want to keep it really simple and just use Microsoft Forms? And then what's the application itself looking to do? So, you know, there's no one magic bullet that says this is the one way to build an app. And, and that was really the point of this talk is to say, well, here's a bunch of options, you know, on a case-by-case case basis, figure out what uh, what makes the most sense for you from that point of view. That, that I agree that, that this has been great. But now another thing, I know with your with your organization and, and your personal history and dealing with users, either 
my organizational users or guests or B2B or B2C or whatever. So if I'm taking a look back at all these different options that you've discussed, have you run any, into any issues with, let's say, guest users or, or a partner organization as opposed to internal users? Well, we, we started the talk by saying we weren't going to talk about security, but I think we need to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this isn't necessarily how to, but I just, again, is there something I should be looking for or maybe there's a gotcha here or, or maybe just it all just works once uh, once you get that kind of security set up. I'm curious to get your feedback on that. Yeah, and unfortunately, I've done reviews on you know client projects where they've used Power Apps or they've done their own HTML forms and things like that, um, where often security by opsification has been used, and that's a really bad idea. You know, just the fact that you've hidden that and hopefully people don't find it does not mean you've secured it. So you know, thinking about things like Azure AD integration and web API authentication, you know, it's something that every developer needs to really understand that, you know, secure design is an important thing that you need to take into consideration as you're starting to map out what this application is going to look like and saying, okay, well, who needs to have what rights? If it's a simple form that just submits right to a, a SharePoint list, is it reasonable that everybody has access to that SharePoint list? Maybe yes, maybe no. So, so think about that. And there's some quick and dirty things that you can do to address that. You know, we've done solutions where uh, an HTML form submits to a SharePoint list and everybody has contributed access to that list, but we don't want everybody to see everything in there. So we have a flow or a, a logic app that runs as soon as something gets submitted and it puts it to a more secure location from there. You know, is that ideal? Well, maybe not. And you know, there might be up to 60 seconds where that data is exposed and available to somebody else. And if they're really diligent, they may be able to snag it as part of that. But, you know, you kind of have to balance the, the level of security and and the level of confidentiality that the data is, is going to be going through as part of that as well. So th this has been very helpful, I find. Is there anything else here that uh, I forgot to ask you about here? I mean, I know you had a, a, a somewhat lengthy presentation I asked you to, to chop in half or so, but any other key points that we we should discuss? No, I think, uh, you know, hopefully that's given people a good sense of, hey, what are some of the different possibilities here? And like I said, you know, there's more out there. There's certainly, you know, lots of third-party vendors that have form solutions and such. Have a look at those too. Um, and, and just remember that, like I said before, it's not a one-size-fits-all. You're going to find different solutions for different scenarios, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you may standardize on on two or three of those, but but pick and choose what makes sense for for your organization and and the level of developer sophistication that you have, and and what makes sense from that perspective. That's terrific. Thank you very much. Now you've mentioned you've done you know several presentations. Where where might folks find you uh, coming up? Uh, any any speaking plans? I've got a, uh, if you're in the Toronto area, I'm actually presenting the next Toronto SharePoint Users Group meeting, which is the third Wednesday in February, uh, doing a webinar actually on the Azure Logic Apps and um, Power Automate side of things. Let me just get the date for that. I should know it off the top of my head. It's later in February as well. Well, yeah, third Wednesday is good enough, right? Folks will be able to figure that out, and we can certainly put a link into that. And then how about on social media? Are you uh, Do you hang out in there? I, I, I find myself not there that often, but do you uh, find yourself up there and folks want to reach out? That's sadly, I'm, I'm probably not any better than, than yourself <laughs> yeah. on there. I do have an at Carson <laughs> Peter Twitter handle, so you can certainly reach out from that point of view. Um, I would say go to uh, HTTP eum.co is the shortcut for our extranet user manager site. You'll see a lot of articles and events that I uh, participate on that. And then I've got my blog.petercarson.ca is my uh, my personal blog that I also post articles up on that as well. 
we will get links to those in there for everyone. So I really appreciate you taking the time, Peter. It's been great chatting and again, great great tips and tricks for folks who are trying to capture data and and i look forward to catching up again next time we're in person awesome thanks paul appreciate the opportunity take care okay thanks for listening to the microsoft 365 developer podcast please follow us on twitter at m365 dev podcast and check out our show notes at www.m365 devpodcast.com To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. 